the one thing that scared Henry Mandor's mother most in life was the fear of being buried alive. To play it safe, she insisted that her death be verified by five doctors. She wasn't allowed to be embalmed, and just in case, a working phone was put in her tomb. One year after her death, Henry, her blind son, began to get strange phone calls. All he heard through the receiver was the voice of a crying woman. Was it his mother calling from beyond the grave? And what does this have to do with what happened in Sahara de Cobre years earlier? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to the 40th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and here... I like to go beyond just movie reviews and dig a little into the history of a film along with a bit about the people who worked on the film. And the show is a great way for me to watch films that I've never seen before, perhaps films that I wouldn't normally have watched, like today's film, The Ghost of Sierra de Cobre. This was recommended to me by a longtime listener and frequent contributor to the show, Russell Devlin. Russell also provided me with some background information about the film. Now, before I get started, I just wanted to say that I'm always looking for strange and unusual films. If you've got a film that you think I should view, send me an email at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. I also have a Facebook page and Twitter account, and you can get a hold of me there. I'll have more information about those places at the end of the show. The Ghost of Sierra de Cobre was from 1964. It was a CBS television film, but don't let that scare you. It doesn't have that made-for-TV look. It looks good, so much so that I didn't even realize it was a television film. It was written and directed by Joseph Stefano, Not only was Stefano the producer and co-writer of the original Outer Limits television series, but he also wrote the script for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The film looks beautiful. While it's at the 4-3 ratio, it still has that look and feel of a film. One reason the film looks so good was probably because of Conrad Hall. Conrad was a cinematographer who worked on such films as In Cold Blood, Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, American Beauty, and Road to Perdition. He lived from 1926 to 2003 and won three Academy Awards and three BAFTA Awards for his work. He was also married to Catherine Ross for six years, so there's that. He worked with Stefano on The Outer Limits, which happened about the same time they made this film. The cast of the film isn't too shabby either. It stars Martin Landau as Nelson O'Ryan, an architect by day, and a paranormal investigator by night. Landau lived from 1928 to 2017. His career began in 1959 in Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. 
He did a lot of television work beginning in 1957 and continuing throughout his life. He's best known for starring in the original series Mission Impossible and for Space 1999. He also has a pretty impressive filmography. His most famous role, of course, was of Bela Lugosi and Tim Burton's Ed Wood, in which he won all kinds of awards, including the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He was also nominated for an Academy Award for Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. Landau, well, come on, he's always a joy to watch. I have no home. Haunted. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. Tom Simcox plays Henry Mandor, a blind man who's getting some strange phone calls. Simcox was born in 1937 and, as of this podcast, is still alive at 85 years old. He did a lot of television work, appearing in almost every TV show between 1962 and 1991. I can't say I'm too familiar with him here, and this might be bad to say, but he comes off as pretty unremarkable in this film. That could just be the character he's playing. I'm not really sure. His wife in the film... Vivia Mandor is played by Diane Baker. She reminded me so much of Natalie Wood, I don't know why. She was born in 1938 and is still alive today. Her career began in 1959 playing Margot Frank, the sister of Anne Frank, in the film version of The Diary of Anne Frank. She had a long career in both TV and films. In this film, she's wonderful playing the wife who just might be hiding a secret. Dame Judith Anderson, whose real name is Frances Margaret Anderson, plays the mysterious Paulina, the new housekeeper. She was, according to Wikipedia, a preeminent stage actress in her era. She won two Emmy Awards, a Tony Award, and was also nominated for a Grammy Award and an Academy Award. She is an Australian actress who is considered one of the 20th century's greatest classical stage actors. Her successful career included stage, film, and television. She's probably best known for playing Mrs. Danvers in Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 film Rebecca. It's funny that most of the cast has some connection to Alfred Hitchcock. Anderson's other films include And Then There Were None from 1945, The Strange Love of Martha Ivers from 1946, The Ten Commandments from 1956, and she was also in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, as the Vulcan High Priestess who restores Spock's memory to his body. With your approval, we shall use all our powers to return to his body that which you possess. But, McCoy, you must now be warned. The danger to thyself is as grave as the danger to Spock. A couple of others in this film are Nellie Burt as Martin Landau's housekeeper. Nellie also did a lot of TV work. And then there's Leonard Stone as Benedict Schloan, Martin Landau's partner in his architectural business. Stone is best known for playing the father of the golden ticket winner, Violet, in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. He also did a lot of television work. And the reason why so many people working on this film might have done a lot of television work is, well, as we discussed, wasn't made to be a film at all. Now, the way I understand it, it was originally a pilot for a proposed TV series starring Martin Landau as the paranormal investigator slash architect. Russell will be joining us in a few minutes, and he'll be talking more on this subject. 
It was originally directed by Robert Stevens, a TV director who worked on such shows as Suspense from 1949 to 1952, Alfred Hitchcock Presents from 1955 to 1961, and many others. But when Stevens fell ill, Stefano took over as a director. Now, being that it was originally going to be a TV pilot, and then extra scenes were filmed to make it into a movie, and it started with one director, and then another director took over, it could be the reason why the retitled The Ghost of Sierra Cobra just seems a little uneven at points. Now, apparently this sat on the shelf for years before being shown on TV. I didn't know any of this when I first viewed the film, and I was wondering about a few scenes right away. Like at one point, Martin Landau meets a pretty young blonde on the beach played by Dolores Starr. The two flirt, but this scene goes nowhere. In fact, the blonde is never seen again. I like haunted houses. Have you ever wandered through one? Yes. Did you break in through the cellar window? I didn't have to. The doors were hanging open like, like eyelids that no one had bothered to put a penny on. <laughs> Would you like to spend an evening in a haunted house? Yes. Um, if your husband wouldn't mind. I'm not married. Now that I know this was a pilot for a TV series, I'm wondering if it was set up for something later in the series. And of course, like I said, having two directors never helps. Now the story is about Henry Mandor, who is a blind man who starts getting phone calls from his dead mother. It seemed that she was so worried about being buried alive that she had a phone installed in her tomb. When the wife returns from a trip, she finds her husband freaked out, so she hires a suave and cool architect, Nelson Orion, who also works as a paranormal investigator, to help out. If your husband isn't being genuinely haunted, I won't charge a penny. Whenever I do uncover a prank or any other crime, I turn it over to the police department. A medium who charges only for the genuine thing must be... A very poor medium. Officially, I'm an architect, and I make a sizable living at it. Now, later, it seems that Orion and Mandor's creepy new housekeeper, Paulina, have a past. He worked on a case in Sahara de Cobre. There was the murder of a teacher, and some claim it was a supernatural spirit responsible. She claims he failed to deal with the ghost, and he claims that, well, there was no ghost at all. Just a powerful psychedelic drug. The people of Sierra de Cobre had faith in you. We expected you to rid our mission of its horror. If you had merely failed in that, we would have forgiven you. But to cast suspicion on us. To say that one of us would murder an American. So what happened in Sahara de Cobre, and what does this have to do with the mysterious phone calls? Well, I won't spoil it for you, but there are many twists and turns. Now, in the second part of my podcast, I will look at some user reviews. But I just wanted to say that while going through many of them on IMDb, 
I seem to see there's a lot of folks from Australia commenting on this film. I have to assume it was very successful down under. Now for more information on that, and how he was affected while first watching this film as a child, let's turn to the man who recommended the film, Russell. Take it away, sir. Hello celluloiders, Russell again, with a few words on the Ghost of Sierra de Cobre. I hope the sound's alright today, we've uh, got a bit of a flood emergency down our way and there's helicopters flying over every couple of minutes, but uh, well, we'll just have to see. It's late at night, a small boy is watching television, but suddenly he sees a terrifying image of an undead horror and runs from the room screaming. A scene from Poltergeist, Halloween, a 70s slasher flick. No, it's me in 1966 and I just saw a movie which will literally haunt me for decades. Flash forward to 1986. I'm in a number of SF and TV movie clubs and have several collective friends. And when talk turns to old shows, I mention that movie I saw in 66 and we try and work out what it is, but no one seems to know. As my collection of old programs and movies increases, we rule out series like Boris Karloff's Thriller, Roald Dahl's Way Out, Journey to the Unknown, and horror movies of the period. As time marches on, I come across a screening guide to the awful movie with Deadly Earnest, the TV horror host show I originally saw it on. That usually screened B-movies of the sort they show on Mystery Science Theatre, but it did have the occasional cult horror like Carnival of Souls, and by a process of elimination, I have a title at last, The Ghost of Sierra de Cobre. But what was it? My old horror movie reference books drew a blank, and there was nothing on the internet about it at that time, but gradually I found snippets of information, like a picture of the ghost costume and brief mentions in passing. It turns out it was actually a TV pilot made in 1964 for a supernatural series called The Haunted. But who made it? None other than Joseph Stefano of Outer Limits fame. No wonder it was so scary. Stefano had been a screenwriter in the 50s and was selected by Alfred Hitchcock to write the screenplay adaption of Robert Bloch's novel Psycho and then went on to produce and write for The Outer Limits for Leslie Stevens in 1963. Stefano wanted to produce something beyond the early 60s uh, TV fair and went for the look more typical the atmospheric Euro horror films then screening in the US and succeeded very well. There's still nothing quite like Outer Limits and it is so much better than the 90s revival. As usual with TV at the time, when someone had one successful TV show, he tried to get other ones going. One pilot from Stefano, The Unknown, did not get picked up but screened as the final episode of the series one of Out Limits. The Haunted, however, was much more obscure. What Stefano wanted to do was try and produce the Out Limits of TV horror shows, using many of the Out Limit actor and uh, production people to make it, and the same type of music special effects and sound. The Haunted was about psychic investigator Nelson Orion, played by Martin Landau, a wealthy architect who lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright-style house on a California beachside cliff, sort of a combination of Bruce Wayne and Carl Kolchak. Landau had appeared in two classic Outer Limits, and he was joined by Diane Baker, whose husband was getting phone calls from her mother, and worries she'd been dead in a crypt for over a year. She is then haunted by a truly horrifying apparition, while Dame Judith Anderson turns up as the sinister housekeeper Paulina, a similar role to a Mrs. Danvers character from Alfred Hitchcock's classic Rebecca. 
Stefano. Stefano succeeded in making a very scary TV pilot, but succeeded too well, as one of the suits he screened it for was so scared he had to change his suit afterwards. Some say that's why the series did not get picked up, but a more likely reason that the shuffle at the top of CBS saw all new projects canned apart from Wild Wild West, but so they didn't waste their dough, the studio agreed to shoot uh, 15 minutes of extra scenes and release it as a standalone horror movie. It didn't get a theatrical release, but turned up in TV packages of horror films, like the ones I saw on Deadly Earnest. It cropped up on TV through 60s and 70s and got a video release in the 80s. Uh, uh, no, no, it didn't. Why, you may ask? What happens with most movie and TV shows is the production company has an archive which distributes the various movies and series to markets and keeps them in circulation so that shows ranging from the Twilight Zone to Beverly Hillbillies can be seen year after year. However, however, the recut part of an unsold TV show might only have a few copies made, then things like the following can happen, as related in this IMDB review. In 64 or 65, my father, who was working at CBS, brought home a 16mm print of this film which had been screened at the network as a potential pilot, but was rejected because the network but it was too scary for television audiences. I was seven years old at the time, and my brother was nine when we first saw it, and it was the most frightening thing we'd ever seen. The bleeding ghost as referred to it gave us both nightmares for many years to follow, but we still watched it over and over again. When I was 18, my family's house burned completely to the ground and a 16mm print was lost in the fire with everything else. I am now 47 and images and sounds from this film still linger in my mind. My father, my brother and I would all very much like to find a copy in any form of this classic work of horror. Any leads would be greatly appreciated. The Ghost of Sierra de Cobre became a lost film. Stefano didn't have a copy and didn't know anyone who did, and only a few surviving copies in the hands of collectors existed. There was one in Japan which got screened at cons and movie festivals, but even if one of the printovers could be swayed to screen it, the right situation was complicated. However, in 2018 it finally did get a release from Kino Lorba, with a sparkling crisp restored copy and a somewhat more beater up hunted TV pilot version. And what did I think after seeing it for the first time in 55 years? Well, I didn't run from the room screaming this time, but I can see why I did back in the day. The movie is very atmospheric, the ghost very effective, in fact I'd say it was probably the scariest monster movies until the alien turned up in 78. And while made for TV with typical TV plotting, it was still a lot better than many theatrical releases of the period. Had the pilot gone to series, it probably would have been regarded as a TV classic, provided they had kept the standard up. But at least we still have the ghost of Sierra de Cobre. Okay, over to you, Jeff. People who call themselves unbelievers always, always remind me of Madame Pompadour's famous remark. I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm afraid of them. Thanks, Russell. I never saw this film until this week, and I didn't run screaming from the room, but I can see a child just might. You know, I'm really tempted to purchase this film on Blu-ray or DVD to see the pilot version. I think it would be interesting to see what the original version had and what they filmed to extend it into feature length. There is a lot of talking in this film, and sometimes I found it too much. I don't know if that had anything to do with it being expanded or not. But like I said, it does look amazing, and there's some nice special effects, like the ghost that appears once in a while. One of my favorite scenes is near the beginning when Diane Baker and Martin Landau are in a mausoleum, and the door flies open and the wind bursts in. There are some very cool effects. John, the wind. No! 
Sorry, that scene probably doesn't do a lot for you since you're listening to a podcast and it's more of a visual thing, but you know, you get the idea, right? Maybe? I don't know. I enjoyed watching this film. Actually, I watched it twice to make sure I understood all the hows and whys. Now, I went to Rotten Tomatoes, as I always do, but hey, no one has reviewed the film on Rotten Tomatoes. What's up with that? So I looked around and I found some reviews on Letterboxd, and uh, I'll read a few of those now. Pirate Neckbeard gave it four stars, and he wrote, Wow, what a true delight. This story has so many smart twists and succulent dialogue jabs that it just creates a wink and a smirk. Plus, it's hard not to note the great look of this film in 4-3 ratio and in glorious black and white done by Conrad Hall. Really, I think that Joseph Stefano was firing in all pistons here, from the direction to writing. So much ridiculous, interwoven with warmth and compassion, that it feels like a preview to Pedro Almodovar, but with some fun special effects here. Yep, I guess you're on the money there, Mr. Neckbeard. Screen Man gave it three and a half stars, and he wrote, Really decent mood they got going here. I love black and white horror thrillers from the 60s as they look like they've perfected the monochromatic style. Some fun frights with decent acting, but this is still a high floor, low ceiling type of horror film. I guess I agree, Screen Man, but I'm not sure what you mean by high floor, low ceiling type of horror film. If that's a thing, well, I'm unaware. But of course, not everyone can agree. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, like Kenneth C., who gave it two and a half stars and wrote, When is a lost classic not a lost classic? When it is instead a found mediocrity. Wow, Kenneth, you really stuck it to those who love this film. Did you have a wicked smile on your face when you typed that? I would think you did. Dan gave it only two stars and he wrote, so-so pilot for a paranormal TV series that never got picked up. Some creepy moments, but a lot of dead time. And many scenes are predictable, such as the one in the crypt or the final. Hmm, I don't know about being predictable, but I agree there were a few slow spots. Someone who calls themselves Con Oxer, C-O-N-O-X-R, gave it only two stars and she wrote... When this film first started, I was hit with a genuine, chilling, and off-putting vibe that piqued my interest a lot. And then they had the first CGI ghost scene, and it went downhill from there. Yeah, I know this film isn't for everyone, I get it. But I don't think that in 1964 there was a CGI ghost. I mean, if there was, this film was pretty revolutionary. The music for this film is good, but it's, it's, it's a bit overwhelming in some places. I mean, listen to the opening theme. Martin Landau was doing nothing more than just walking on the beach. 
If I had to guess, I'd say the opening theme was a bit overdone because it was written for a TV show theme rather than the opening credits of a feature film. And then there's the scene when the wife and housekeeper first meet. How do you do, Mrs. Mandel? I've been looking forward to your return. That's way overdone in my opinion. And the same music is used for a shot in which starts at the top of a telephone pole, then pans down to show cables that connect with the mother's tomb. I mean, just some soft, creepy music would have sufficed. But this is just my opinion. It was created by Dominic Frontier. Frontier had been the musical director at 20th Century Fox, and he wrote themes for such shows as The Rat Patrol, The Flying Nun, The Invaders, The Fugitive, and 12 O'Clock High. He also, of course, worked on The Outer Limits. He's a very accomplished composer, so who am I to question his choices, right? Now, one question I had upon my second viewing after I found that this was originally a pilot for a TV show was that it was conceived as an anthology series like The Outer Limits of the Twilight Zone, but focusing more on the supernatural. So was Martin Landau going to star in the show every week as the paranormal investigator Nelson Orion? The reason why I ask is that most anthology series, especially at the time, have a new cast every week. Each show is its own individual story, but I get the impression that Landau was set to be the star of this new show if it ever happened. Otherwise, I don't see the point of his partner being in the show or that blonde girl on the beach. The Ghost of Sierra de Cobra has some great acting, and it has a great atmosphere to it. It generally kept my interest. And yes, like I said, there's a bit too much talking. Not that I have a problem with dialogue. I mean, I've watched my dinner with Andre more than once, but some of it just seems unnecessary. There are some bits that are more for exposition, but they seem to be telling things the audience should probably try to figure out on their own. For instance, there's a scene in which Martin Landau is talking to his housekeeper, and he's figuring a few things out. She's the one person who's always been present. The one percipient of every psychical disturbance that's occurred since the genuine haunting began. The wind. The apparition. The founding. Henry Mandor isn't being haunted. I never did believe any red-blooded American mother ghost would haunt her own son. I'm convinced that Louise Mandor isn't haunting anyone. I thought personally it would be better to let some of that be a mystery to the viewer. And not just, you know, spell it out for them. Anyway, that's maybe nitpicking on my part, right? All in all, I will recommend this film. It's an enjoyable watch. Not a perfect film by any means, but a fun one. It's on YouTube, and you can also find it on a few of those free streaming channels with commercials. I watched it on Tubi. Coming to this theater soon, The Beast of Yucca Flats. Filmed on the burning hot sands by Yucca Flats. See terror, panic, murder. See the Cardoza and Francis production of The Beast of Yucca Flats.
See a man turn killer. See a woman ravaged. See one of the most exciting movies ever made. See the beast of Yucca Flats. A little bit before I go. It saddened me to hear that Russell had lost a 16mm print of the film in a fire. But then I thought about it and I, I would assume that losing that film was only a minor concern compared to losing, well, everything the family had. I couldn't imagine the horrors of watching all my memories burn up in a house fire. I just hoped that no one was hurt. As far as you wondering about the film and looking for a copy, I had a similar thing happen. I mean, not quite the same. I've told this story before, but I just remembered the scene from a Western film. And for years, I couldn't figure out what film it was. Every time I watched a Western, I wondered, is this the film? And I don't even know why that scene stuck in my head. It, it was really a silly scene. This lasted for like 40 years. Finally, I saw the film and the mystery was solved. Not quite the same thing, Russell, I know, but anyway. So next week, we're going to go back to a Rift film. And this time, because Halloween is right around the corner, we're going to look at a frightening horror film. Get ready for us to talk about The Beast of Yucca Flats. I'll tell you everything you never wanted to know about Coleman Francis, so I hope you'll join us. Now listen up, we have a Facebook page and we would love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days, please join us. I also have a Twitter account, it's at Celluloid underscore days. And for those of you at home following along, I'm up to 36 followers. Look out Justin Bieber, can you hear my footsteps? So, I'm always looking for film suggestions, like the one that Russell gave me for today. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. Feel free to email me for any reason. Even if you just want to say, hi, Jeff. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one at wherever you stream this podcast, you know I'd be forever grateful, right? Thank you for listening. Thank you, Russell, for your help in today's show. I'll be back next Monday with the Beast of Yucca Flats. And maybe, just maybe, we will have an old friend return to the show. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid! The High Court may well sentence you to torture! Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time!